Our sermon selection today comes from Luke 1, 26 through 38. The birth of Jesus foretold. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High God. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, and he will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month of her who was said to be barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And then Mary said, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. And then the angel departed from her. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to First Methodist Church. It's been a joy to worship with you. My name is Jim. It's my honor and pleasure to be one of the pastors here and to be with you today. Uh, the first Sunday of Advent, the beginning of December, this wonderful season uh, where we await the arrival of the Lord, both preparing for Christmas but also his return in glory. I just can't help but think about all these beautiful, beautiful worship aids and decorations around here. Isn't it beautiful in here? There's a whole group of people. Let's say thank you to all of those who were here. There was a large group of people last Sunday afternoon and a little through the week that came up here and put all of this up. The wonderful folks. They were even on ladders. God bless them. That meant that I didn't have to because I don't, Jim, don't do ladders. That is perfect English for me. But I'm so thankful, and we have a great season here. Uh, so let me pray for us as we begin our message today. Father, we thank you for your word, and may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, for you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. O little town of Bethlehem. It's a beautiful Christmas song. It's a precious tune. It's a uh, Simple in a way, in the melody, it's got a, a lullaby kind of vibe. It's got a childlike kind of quality to it. It's just a beautiful Christmas song. I bet it's going to get stuck in your head. Maybe in an hour or two, you're going to be humming the, the, the melody, and I hope that you do, and you're welcome to get a little earworm stuck in your head. If that does happen to you, if you do get that song stuck in your head, I hope it will remind you of the beautiful words uh, of truth that are attached to those notes, the profoundness of Jesus' birth and what it means to us as people. Music does that. Have you ever noticed that? Music helps us remember 
I bet, no raising hands, that some of you, if I were to ask you the sixth letter of the alphabet, you would sing the alphabet song in your head to get there. Music brings information. It also connects the heart and soul and mind. And it's a beautiful thing to sing songs of the, like these. You know, over on Twitter, uh, the past few weeks, Twitter, the modern platform for the exchange of sophisticated ideas. <sighs> there was quite a bit of discussion about the song, O Little Town of Bethlehem. In fact, there were some who suggested and called on churches not to sing the song this year, as it may be construed as insensitive in light of the conflict between Hamas and Israel. Now, you may or may not recall this, but modern-day Bethlehem, though we would think of it as over in Israel and the Holy Land, Bethlehem is not in Israel. It's actually a part of the West Bank, uh, over to the west, a region overseen by the Palestinian National Authority or the Palestinian state. And because of its significance religiously and its location there on the border of the West Bank, very close to the border, Bethlehem has been uh, a, a pressure point in ongoing conflicts in the region for decades. There have been actual conflicts, the land around Bethlehem, uh, has seen its share of fear and terror. It's been the home to land seizures back and forth between governments and authorities, the establishment of Palestinian land settlements that uh, get designated. Today, Bethlehem is no longer a little town like we sing about, but a large populous city and its surrounding streets include checkpoints and fences. And so it may not really seem like the subject of a childlike song, because these are not childlike matters. So do we sing the song? Embodied in that simple melody that would seem to belie the seriousness of what people experience today, embodied in the simple melody are the most profound truths of life and death and fear and hope. I want you to consider this lyric. We just sang it. Yet in these dark streets shineth an everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Now, as it was then and has been from the fall of humanity, the gritty reality of flesh and blood, life on earth that walks upon the dust of the ground, and the yearning hope of humankind meet together in Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace and the light of the world. And so this year, as has happened sadly over many years, we come to the season of Advent and Christmas at a time when the places that we will name in the events of the first Christmas will evoke more than historical curiosity, the scenes of nativity sets, or religious sentimentality, but they will evoke and remind us of the real-time terror and yearning of real people. And so I believe that it would be more disingenuous for us to read about places like Bethlehem and Nazareth and other places in the Holy Land and pretend like war wasn't happening. 
I think it's more genuine to name things, to bless the elephants that are in the room that our hearts may be open. So we're going to lean in by focusing on the places surrounding the birth of Christ. In our Advent series, In These Dark Streets Shining, we're going to focus on what is the significance of the places in which God chooses to unfold the story of our Savior's birth and our salvation. So I have three hopes for this series. One, that we will recognize the significance of these places that God has chosen in which the events of our Savior's life unfold. Two, that by doing so and increasing our knowledge about the the holy land and the places then and now, that we'll be more thoughtful and prayerful than we are even now for the people who are in the land today. And third, that we will see the visceral light of Christ in the dark streets upon which we walk and the, the paths on which our hearts tread today. So let's begin where the Christmas story begins, nine months before Jesus' birth in the town of Nazareth. Now, much of the Christmas story as we know it comes from the Gospel of Luke. There are pieces absolutely in the Gospel of Matthew. You can pull some concepts out of the Gospel of John. But even Linus in A Charlie Brown Christmas quotes directly from the Gospel of Luke. And Luke is very detailed. After all, he says he wants to lay out an orderly account of Jesus' life, and boy, is he orderly. In the beginning of each movement of the preparation and the nativity for, of Jesus' birth, in, in every movement, he begins by setting the scene in specific ways. Let's look, for example, at chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. It told the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah and her uh, being with child with John the Baptist. As the scene turns, this is how it begins. In the sixth month, Luke wants us to know time, the angel Gabriel was sent by God. He begins to introduce us to the cast. To a town in Galilee called Nazareth. He sets the entire scene and begins to tell us the action that will unfold. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The places are important. And so we find ourselves in Nazareth. You can see the map of Nazareth. It'll show up on your screen in a moment. It's also in your bulletin insert. Nazareth is in the northern region of Israel in an area called the Galilee. It is conveniently called so because the Sea of Galilee is right there. And let's not waste our creative energy coming up with a different name. It's around the Sea of Galilee. We're calling it the Galilee. Today, Nazareth is the largest city in that region. You can take a look at modern-day Israel, and you can see just this picture. It is densely populated. It's filled with buildings and businesses and nestled kind of in a bowl uh, surrounded by uh, mountains and hills. You can see just how populated. The population today is somewhere around 78,000 people with a majority of the residents of Nazareth being Arab and Muslim. Now, despite the significance to Christianity, which is due to the story we just read, the events that took place, 
Christians make up about 30% of the population of Nazareth. However, it is home to the largest community of Arab Christians in the region. Nazareth is also known as uh, the Arab high-tech corridors. There's a lot of high-end uh, manufacturing and information technology and computer technology that occurs there. But not only has it got an economy like that, tourism is a huge part of the economy. In fact, pilgrimage is frequent uh, for Nazareth because of the events recorded here in Luke chapter 1. Uh, you can see it, that Nazareth is the home of the Greek Orthodox Church of the Annunciation or sometimes known as St. Gabriel's Church, after the angel Gabriel. Now, underneath this church uh, is a well that has been continuously running since as far as people can remember. And what the Greek Orthodox Christians recall in their tradition is that that running, place of running water is Mary's well, the place where their tradition holds that Mary was drawing water when the angel Gabriel came to make an announcement to her, hence the Annunciation announcement. Actually, if you go out beyond the grounds of the church into a courtyard, they've piped some of that running water out into uh, a flowing fountain for the public so that you can wash your hands or face or drink water from Mary's well. It's kind of a precious thing. If, listen, if it wasn't her well, it's as close as we'll ever be to it, so might as well build a church on top of it. That's what we say every time. If you've gone to the Holy Land, you're like, is this really the spot? You say, you know, you, you live in Georgia. You're closer now than you ever will be. But it's also home uh, to another great pilgrimage site, the Roman Catholic Basilica of the Annunciation. Gosh, I wish I could show you the pictures, but I don't want to be that guy who takes you uh, into his slideshow. So I just want to show you this. This is the inside of the church of the the Basilica of the Annunciation. It's built over this archaeological site of a first century home in which people believe may have very well been the home of Mary. And so you can see uh, up on the top level is the nave or the main sanctuary, like where we are. It's this huge, beautiful, uh, large room with an altar, but you can see that at the floor of the, up at the top, there's a large circular hole that looks down where people who are worshiping can see into this lower chapel where you have behind the altar the grotto or the cave or the home of Mary, and there's a small chapel down there too. And people come to these places all of the time, yet despite all of the activity and the populace that occurs in Nazareth today, at the time of the story, Nazareth was a small village. We don't know exactly how many, it's hard to tell, uh, about 100 to 400 people lived in Nazareth. You know that there were a lot of people who lived in the surrounding areas because when they do archaeology, they find like luxury villas and bathhouses and all this cool stuff. But when you go over to Nazareth, it's like nothing. They found that one house. It's kind of like Nazareth was a satellite community. You might, uh, I don't know, you live, you live in Dawson and come to work in Albany kind of thing. Um, so it's a small community. It's kind of insignificant in the scheme of the geography. In fact, you might remember in the Gospel of John, we've heard of Nazareth there too. You remember uh, Philip? He meets Jesus and he's like, man, I'm going to tell my brother, I found the Messiah. This is great. So he runs over to Nathaniel and says, Nathaniel, we found him, the Messiah. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. And his brother Nathaniel's like, uh-uh. He says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, even in the time of Jesus, it was a place that wasn't really prominent and thought of as a, as a source of anything significant. Now, if you look through the Old Testament, and you scholarly types, if you look through other uh, 
ancient historical works, hundreds of towns in the region of Galilee are named. Hundreds of them. Not one mention in the Old Testament or in historical works about the town of Nazareth. In fact, the first time we hear about Nazareth in the Bible is when it's talking about Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus, this is the place he was born, and this is his childhood hometown. It's like one of those small towns in Georgia that you pass when you've got a long trip down uh, 280 or I-75. You know that, that there's a gas station somewhere up there, but you have no idea if the place has got a name. Speaking of names, it's unclear where Nazareth got its name. A lot of the places in the Bible is very clear and significant, like Jerusalem is, is Yahweh's peace, you know? Uh, Bethlehem, house of bread. Nazareth, I don't know. People, however, widely think that it probably is a play on the Hebrew word netzer. I'm not going to get too nerdy on you, but I think it's important to know netzer, which means a branch, a sprout, or a crown. And that's a reference to the, the netzer is actually an important word in uh, first century Judaism because it's a messianic reference about the coming hope of the Messiah. And it's found in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, a verse you may recall, a shoot, a netzer, will come up from the stump of Jesse, that is King David's father. And from his roots, a branch, a netzer, will bear fruit. And so the whole idea is that the people of God would be restored by the birth of a king out of the broken line of David. That's what they're hoping for. It's a messianic hope. So the word netzer evokes the hope that God will do that, that the Messiah will come. And maybe, just like we sometimes uh, ambitiously name our children uh, of the things that they may become, maybe naming the town Nazareth is a way of claiming the hope of the netzer. It's a, it's a place where maybe the Messiah will come. But nobody else really seemed to know that around the area, so it just got put up on signs. And Nazareth seems to be quite insignificant in the time. And yet, despite that, this is the place where God not only announced the birth of the Messiah, but began his life as the Holy Spirit conceived him in the womb of a very young woman named Mary. Isn't that interesting? Of all of the places, Jerusalem's just down south a little ways. Everybody knows about Jerusalem. And yet in Nazareth, the Roman Empire is all over, occupying all of the Holy Land. Why not go to Rome? And yet here in Nazareth to a young woman named Mary. You know, what's interesting about Mary is that she would otherwise, besides this event, she would otherwise be an insignificant member of an insignificant population of an insignificant town. And yet, there is so much beauty in this story. There's so much. I wish we could spend more time today just to look through Mary's role in Scripture and in the life of Jesus. But there's so much beauty in the story of the Annunciation or the announcement and conception of Jesus. I mean, think about this, that God would visit and bestow such an honor on such a person in such a place. But also, one of the, Mary gives one of the, the lines that haunts me and inspires me almost most in Scripture. When the angel Gabriel says, Hey, Mary, favored one, the Lord is with you, you're going to bear a son. Mary gives an unreserved yes to a life-changing, body-changing, 
experience-changing announcement. She says these words in verse 38, Here am I, the servant of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Let it be with me according to your word. Oh my goodness, that I would have the grace and courage to say that more. And it's not just God says, Mary, I want to bless you. And we're like, yeah, be it unto me according to your word, Lord. It's, it's like, Mary, I'm going to change your circumstances and make the mean people nice to you and fill your bank account. Be it unto me according to your word, my Lord. No, it's Mary. The very interior of your body is about to change. The very course of your life and the way that your feet walk the, this earth is going to change. The very conception of your future will change with the conception of this child. It's not just exterior stuff and exterior blessings, which are easy to say yes to. This is about a complete and fundamental use and takeover and stewardship of one's self. That's harder to say yes to. And Mary says, even that, the deepest parts of myself, my body, my dreams, my future, my reputation, my hopes, is all yours, God, for I am your servant. Be it unto me according to thy word. You know what I wonder about all this? Nazareth and Mary, is that God shows up in insignificant places to ordinary people. That Christ comes to walk the hidden streets of unseen people to bring light in unseen darkness. This is just the nature of Christ. And as we meditate upon Nazareth and, and Mary's response today, I just I think it's worth remembering that because there are many of us that feel unseen at any given po point, unheard. And we know people who are unseen and unheard. And we should know that that is precisely the place where Christ arrives. And there are legitimate, actual, dark streets in the places that we live, in the places around the world where neighbors are actually living in fear of others. And Christ shows up and appears in those places. But there's also dark paths in your life. There are hurts that are hidden that nobody sees, and nor would you want them to, but that is precisely the place, the quiet, unknown, insignificant to others place that is where Christ arrives it's where the hopes and fears of all your years will meet not in destruction and pain and the end, but in Christ who brings life because he will walk those streets and illumine the darkness. It's in the very places where we are either in pain or under oppression or we are walking intentionally in a dark path of sin and harm to others or even to ourselves. That is precisely the kind of place, even if we cover it up and mask it well, that Christ will come. If no one else sees, Christ still sees. Christ arrives in places like that. That's my encouragement for you today as we think about Nazareth and about Advent and Christmas is that you would allow yourself to pause and be open to allow Christ to come in for, 
for very much in a similar way, Gabriel says to Mary, I'm going to do a thing. Christ is going to do a thing. And that was a world-changing thing. But, but God continues to speak to you and says, there are dark streets and dark paths in your life, and I want to do a thing. And may we say, may it be unto me according to thy word, either to say yes to the healing and light that God wants to bring into our lives, or to go out into a place where he wants us to carry it. This is the thing I want us to remember about Christmas. It's not just a season. It's not just an ephemeral thing like the Christmas spirit. It's not just some concept. It's, it's the actual celebration that God became flesh and tangible and real and walked the streets of real life places because that is the only way redemption comes. When you are in the dark, the idea of a light is not going to do it. An actual light will. And that's what Christmas is because Jesus comes. True hope is real. And so on these dark streets shineth an everlasting light. The hopes and fears of all our years are met in thee tonight, O Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen.